Million Loritz Andreasen was many things. He was a scholar. He was an educator. He was an administrator. He was a pastor. I would say that if an Adventist recognizes his name today, they probably associate him with other words, words like agitator, troublemaker, reformer, traditionalist, or perhaps last-generation theology? I'd like to add a new word to the ledger of his life. Prophet. Welcome to your September bonus episode of the Avenus History Podcast. Today we're going to be focusing on a letter I found from M.L. Andreasen on my research trip to the General Conference archives. Wasn't looking for this letter, but when I read it, I knew I had to have a copy of it. And as I was reading, I didn't fully read it till I got home because, hey, you got to get scanning. You got to get moving there when I'm at the archives. Got home, read it more carefully, and I just, I felt this rush of, this is it. This this explains some things. Andreasen saw it coming, and it just gets me excited. I don't know. I don't know about how you guys are. Some of you guys I know are not researchers, not really into this kind of thing, but, but for those who are, you know this feeling when you find something. It's like, I can't wait to, to publish this. I can't wait to tell somebody about this. I can't wait to incorporate this into my work somehow. And so that's what this episode is going to be about. It's going to be about this particular letter about Andreas, and hopefully we can, we can flesh out the picture Whatever impression you may have about Andreas, and maybe you're coming at this with a blank slate, don't know anything about the dude, fine. But if you know something, this this letter should should hopefully help flesh out whatever impression you have about ML Andreas. Okay. Before we get into the letter, however, do just want to run a couple of things by you guys. For the patrons out there on Patreon who are supporting this podcast, added a few extra goals. We've been hitting our our patron targets when we get so many patrons uh you know we we do something and enables us to do something so i just added a few more goals and one of those goals is when we get to so many patrons i can get a part-time researcher which is really really helpful for me because there's a lot i want to do and i just don't have the time so having somebody who i can say hey would you mind getting a bunch of stuff? Just go through go through the stuff online, go through Ellen White's letters, whatever. Just find me a bunch of things on this topic, and then I can put something together with that. That'd be really helpful. Another goal, I think, when we get to 50 patrons is going to be leading tours to the historic Avenus Village in Battle Creek. We can we can organize that together. And so that, that'd be fun. So anyways, if you've always thought about it, haven't really jumped in, Go for it. Even if you just give a dollar, it'd be really, really helpful. Appreciate that. Working on a new website, working on getting some new merchandise on that website. You can go there now and get t-shirts and stuff now, but I'm uh, going to keep adding some new stuff to it. Hope that you enjoy it. Uh, one final thing. We've been doing the Avenus History Podcast live 
each month. We did it in August, did it in September already. And that's Jason who helps me out with the podcast, does a lot of the social media things. He sits down with me and we talk about the last numbered episodes. The numbered episodes are the ones that come out on the 22nd. So we just kind of, uh, you know, not just recap, but but just take it a little bit further. What do these things mean? What should we learn from them? And you guys are invited to those live episodes, those live conversations that we have. They appear on our YouTube channel. And if you want to drop some comments or questions, we're going to get to a point, I hope, where we're going to bring you on to the show live. We'll just send you a link and you can click it, open up a browser, get on your webcam or something and just say, hey, you know, just chat with us for a few minutes. Just chat with us, hang out. I think it'd be a lot of fun. So we're going to try to standardize that. It's not the same day of the month every single every single month. So, uh, But just stay tuned to Facebook and Instagram, and we'll let you know when the next one is. It'll be in October. Okay? All right. I think that about covers it right now. Let's get back to this letter for with Andreasen. All right. So as I, as I was reading this letter, I realized that I would consider Andreasen a lowercase p prophet. Okay, I don't mean like Moses. I don't mean like Elijah. I just mean somebody who, somebody who, to me, a lowercase p prophet is somebody who has had some some just insight that is above and beyond what might normally be expected of somebody. Insight for this moment. Insight into into a situation that it's like, wow, yeah, I, I think God is speaking through them in this moment. Doesn't mean they're called to be a full time prophet. Whatever. Okay, you get what I'm saying here. Somebody who who saw something coming it doesn't necessarily mean in this case it's a it's a supernatural gift. Maybe he just had his ear to the ground. Maybe God had just blessed him with insight, blessed him with a sense of perception, of discernment, whatever it is. There's no doubt that he was right in this letter and that he was among the first who saw it coming. Our story begins in the winter of 1942 to 43, when M.L. Andreasen wanted to quit. This old Danish gentleman had already served as president of another seminary, dean of two colleges, president of another college, president of a conference. He was a, a good leader, capable leader. He was a rigorous and careful scholar, and he had now taught at the church's flagship seminary uh, near the church's headquarters in, in the D.C. area. And this 66-year-old veteran wrote this letter to James McElhaney, of course, president of the General Conference at the time. This is what he said, quote, I have now come to a time where I feel that I must have a change. I would put health as the immediate cause, end quote. Now, that was largely a face-saving gesture because Andreasen admitted as much in a follow-up letter saying that he was absolutely finished teaching at the seminary, but he didn't want to stir up any drama by his sudden resignation, so he would only ask for a year off for health reasons, okay? Just tell people I'm not feeling well. Now, Andreasen was all twisted up in knots. He wanted to keep teaching. He loved teaching, but he had so many problems with the seminary that he felt he couldn't go on. The problems, he said quote, are so widespread and basic that it would, in effect, be the changing of an institution to fit a man's notion. This cannot and should not be done. Now, Andreasen didn't want to become a prima donna, all right? Like, well, unless you fix these things, I'm going to quit. He didn't think the church should work that way. He was horrified at that thought. He, he said, quote, no employee has a right to state that he will only stay under certain conditions, end quote. 
Nor did Andreasen want to tell McElhaney what his problems were, because again, again, then McElhaney might feel tempted to try to solve those problems in order to appease Andreasen. He didn't want this to be about himself. If church leaders didn't see things the, the, way, the way that Andreasen saw them at the seminary, then it was probably best that he walks away. Now, if you know anything about Andreasen's story in the late 1950s, then you know he, he will maybe abandon some of these principles and cause a whole lot of drama. Um, but here in the early 1940s, at least, he, he held firm. He had problems with the seminary. He felt that he couldn't say what those problems were or demand that they be solved because he didn't want this to be about his ideas and his opinions and his beliefs, okay? So he had to quit. There's something honorable in there. And there's a lot to, to admire in Andreas in here. I mean, the old gentleman obviously had seen others trying to shape churches and conferences to their own view of things like they were little kings. He had seen pastors and lay members demand to have the church a certain way or else they would leave. And he just, he didn't want any of that. The church does not belong to any one person. It is a community project. A few months later, Andreasen received word that a committee had finally been formed to consider his offer of resignation. He had wanted to leave at the end of the summer term, but here it is in the middle of June, and the church had just now formed a committee to consider his letter. Okay. And, but he also saw in the committee a confidential and appropriate place to share more of his thinking. And so Andreasen wrote this third letter to McElhaney and to the committee as if he were unable to keep all of this bottled up inside him. You know, he had to let some of it out. And this third letter is remarkable. Some might even say prophetic, okay? If you're aware of the dynamics in the Adventist church today, especially in North America, it's almost eerie. Prescient might be a better word. Now, Andreasen began by saying that when he had joined the seminary, then called the Advanced Bible School, back at the beginning, man, he was excited. Andreasen was concerned that Adventists had been theologically drifting. I, I mentioned how hundreds of Adventists had sent in letters to the 1952 Bible Conference asking their theological questions because the General Conference had long said that they were not the arbiter on interpreting the Bible. So what were people to do? Ask their pastors, ask their conference presidents, ask the famous evangelist who just showed up in town. I mean, the answer you received really depended upon who you asked. The, the, the fight over the daily, oh, I know you love hearing about that over and over and over again. It had, it had cooled after 40 years, but the, the rift that remained in the remnant church went unhealed. Nor was it the only crack in the Adventist supercontinent, Pangea was happening. Theological Pangea. Now, Andreasen dreamed of the seminary as a place where the church's top scholars, both intellectual and spiritual people, could be the new center around which the church could unite. That's what the Adventist church needed, a center, something with gravity, keeping us together, something that could, that could, you know, when you have a divisive theological controversy like the daily, somebody who could, you know, be the, the, the Supreme Court, the theological court. I don't think he would have put it that way, but but right, but like someone who could decide these things and, and bring the church together. Ellen White, of course, had been that center in her later years. She was gone. Pastors from around the world would attend this new seminary, have their theological software updated, and then disperse to update their members as well. 
How would we, we keep things fresh and on the same page? These scholars would do all of this in close connection to general conference officers, of course, who served only a few miles away. This was something Andreasen felt very strongly about. Church leadership and church scholarship would, would work very closely together in order to keep this ship afloat. Andreasen wrote, quote, As students from different divisions would meet, regional theological differences would tend to disappear, and all would be impressed with the serious concern of the responsible officers in regard to doctrinal unity. End quote. He goes on, That dream was promptly shattered. GC officers had never met with the faculty for prayer or for study. For that matter, neither did the school board at any point meet with the faculty in Andreasen's experience. Worse, no one at the GC seemed to even care what happens at the seminary as long as, you know, they're not doing something bad. As Andreasen put it, quote, we are left strictly to ourselves. In a statement that still rings true today, Andreasen complained that the General Conference, quote, officially concerns itself only with questions that may come up about some heresy, end quote. A lot of Adventists lived in Tacoma Park around the General Conference building. Why were the denomination's leaders not exuding a greater spiritual influence, he wondered? Why were General Conference sessions so businesslike and so unspiritual? Why do the employees at the GC not meet regularly for study? How can you lead the church if you are not united around the Word of God? He's, what, what he's saying here, what he's getting at here is it's like the most spiritual place on earth should be around the General Conference building. Where, where these godly leaders who have been gifted to, to, to lead, right, who have experience and insight into working for God, into bringing people to Jesus, like, should that not be the most spiritual area among the Adventist world? This is his expectation. Andreasen claimed that even his students noticed this lack of spirituality. Quote, they are sincerely perplexed and leave here with the impression that business is in the ascendancy and financial matters first in our estimation, end quote. He says his students are looking on to the work of the General Conference, how they talk about tithe, how they talk about giving, how they need more funds for this mission field to rebuild this thing. And he's like... Yeah, the students notice that it just seems like all the church cares about is money. Have you heard that one before? Oh, the, the result of this lack of spiritual leadership is that seminary professors are all on their own. So Andreas wonders, where do I go for counsel? Some might say, well, you know, go read the fundamental beliefs, right? That's what we believe. Go teach those things. But the seminary professor, Andreasen writes, I'm going to quote him at length here because I think this is important. He says, quote, the seminary professor finds to his perplexity that this is not so, that attempts are made from time to time to change these beliefs and to omit certain statements that are vital to Christianity. He finds a doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity publicly assailed and even ridiculed and no rebuke administered. He finds a seminary and its teachings held up to public condemnation in larger gatherings and no defense forthcoming. He finds in part of the field a distrust of the 
whole conception of the work of the institution, the seminary being considered a fair field for critics, and that whatever is said, whatever rumor circulated, no disability will accrue to the rumor monger. This situation is not healthy, end quote. Now, I'm going to guess that Andreas in his writing from experience here, that when he had questions, he was told to just go teach the fundamental beliefs. But the fundamental beliefs are changeable by design. And that whole situation is backwards, right? I mean, the fundamental beliefs are supposed to be descriptive beliefs about like describing what Adventists already believe. They're not meant to be prescripted. There aren't meant to be our textbooks. And Andreasen saw this and to, to, to maybe to paraphrase him with a little bit of liberty, he's basically saying, look, I've seen people get up to, to try to change the fundamental beliefs at GC sessions, sometimes changing them in a way that leads us away from basic Christianity. Now, whether those people are doing that out of an act of sabotage or ignorance isn't the point. The point is, how can the fundamental beliefs be the source of our theological education if they can be changed at every GC session? And changed by whom? It isn't the Bible scholars who are the majority of delegates to these sessions. It's pastors and lay people and administrators who would be voting on these changes to our fundamental beliefs. And then it's the job of the theologians at the seminary to teach it? Isn't that kind of backwards? You're going to let the non-theologians determine what our beliefs are, and then the theologians have to figure out how to justify them in the Bible, have to figure out how to teach them. You could make a lesson plan one year. A couple of years later, that lesson plan is no good anymore because somebody changed one of the fundamental beliefs. Maybe somebody, maybe a group of people who didn't think Christ was divine got enough delegates there and, and changed something like that. No, I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying, right, think it through. You get what he's saying, right? It should be the other way around. And let's not overlook Andreasen's indictment of church leadership for letting members ridicule basic Christian doctrines like the deity of Christ and the Trinity. I can't help but wonder if Andreasen had in mind a pastor in Algeria named Eugene Ray. Ray was Swiss, but the rumor was that he spoke Arabic so fluently that he could converse with any Arab in the region uh, as naturally as, as they could. He knew Hebrew, Greek, French, and English besides. But another rumor was that Ray's work among Muslims led him to doubt both the, the divinity of Christ and the, the Trinity, the two doctrines which Andreasen, of course, brought up in his letter to McElhaney. Of course, the division president had written to Ray to straighten him out, but anyone who holds the division president's letter up and then holds up Ray's reply to that division president's letter, can tell that the division president was not qualified to debate theology with this man. Ray rather made a sport of dancing around the division president's sincere, but rather limp attempts to convince Ray of Adventist orthodoxy. Ray seemed to expect that he would be disfellowshipped and made it clear that he didn't really care one way or the other. <laughs> this brief exchange of letters happened in early 1941. By the time Andreasen was writing his letters to McElhaney, two years had passed, and Ray was still on the church payroll. The Ray affair showed that you could challenge the divinity of Christ and the Trinity and apparently still be a minister in good standing. So, to paraphrase Andreasen again, I mean, I guess you can mock the Trinity, but don't you dare suggest that the judgment didn't begin in 1844. That's when the church will come down on you, right? That's when men at the GC will finally be roused to Bible study. That's when they finally will take charge. Andreasen is pointing out the weird nature of the church's theological fortifications. The defenses are misplaced, he's saying. How can someone like Eugene Ray doubt the deity of Christ and slide by, but if you question the investigative judgment, you're in trouble? 
Which of these doctrines is more fundamental? Andreasen isn't saying that the investigative judgment shouldn't be defended, only that the, the, the priorities, the theological priorities of church leaders are all just out of whack. The more fundamental the doctrine, the more essentially Christian it is, the more it should be defended, right? And then, of course, Andreasen had brought up another feature of the church, the fact that people can say whatever they want about the seminary and walk away. Why don't general conference officers defend the seminary, something that they created in order to train Adventist pastors? Personal story. This is still an open question in Adventism. When I was in the seminary, I want to say not too long ago, but it's, it's getting further and further in the rearview mirror, guys. When I was there, uh, a popular preacher, towards the end of my time there, popular preacher just laid into the seminary. And, and most of us just who were there just listened to his criticism and just sheer disbelief because it just wasn't true. But people were ready to believe that those ivory tower scholars at the seminary were up to no good. People seemed to want to believe that it was true. They want to believe that these people with PhDs are trying to lead them astray that they shouldn't listen to them. Avenist scholarship is an easy punching bag for some cheap amens and some quick fundraising, okay? And, and in all fairness, this applies to many other aspects of the church, okay? Saints commit slander. They unleash their tongues. They spread rumors about people, about ministries, about leaders, about churches, and there are seldom ever any consequences. Man, especially now that we have the internet. You know what I mean? I mean... You don't have to be deep into the Avenus world to understand what I'm talking about here. And sometimes in the church, you can, you, you can even get some applause for delivering a particularly clever or vicious blow to somebody else's honor, to their integrity, to their commitment to the cause. Andreasen is describing a culture of criticism in the church. There are some targets where the saints feel that they have a license to kill. Okay, maybe not literally, right? But, but with words, with suspicion, with innuendo. This is what bothered W.W. Prescott so much as well, okay? He was, he was a traditional Avenist who saw the papacy as the Antichrist, okay? Traditional in that sense. But he couldn't stand it when evangelists made these far-fetched claims about Catholics. There, there was an, an atmosphere in the church where you can say whatever you want about Catholics. Jesuits are everywhere, I killed billions of people or whatever the latest numbers are up to. They're behind every bad thing in the world. The Pope has a hat that says Vicarius Day, and that's where we get 666 from. Who needs proof? Avidus never could find much. But that didn't stop one person from Photoshopping it and publishing the picture in your eyes to Miss Daniel in Revelation. Catholics are fair game, right? Sure. A local church might cluck their tongues if you are a little too free when talking about the GC president. We should show some respect, right? But the Catholic church, the seminary, maybe some other person in the church, most people are fair game. Now, I'm positive that this is not unique to Adventism, okay? It's just something all Christians wrestle with. Let's just say that Christians tend to do a better job holding people accountable for what they say about their friends than they do in holding people accountable for what they say about their enemies. And we should be better about this, I think. We should be better. Slander is slander. 
whether the person being slandered is a good person or a bad person, they're a close friend or somebody you don't know, okay? And, and, and this is what pains him. We don't often see how it pains people. We don't often see how the piles of letters that arrive on a conference president's desk or a GC official's desk or a ministry leader's desk, how they pile up. We, we think, well, if I just send my one criticism, it's just one criticism, but they get, they get a lot of them and they add up. They add up. And that's what, what hurt Andreasen at the seminary. Well, let's get back to Andreasen's letter. Quote, We have never been entirely united on doctrine, but such early doctrinal differences as existed did not jeopardize a man standing as a Seventh-day Adventist. This is gradually changing, and more and more organizations hesitate to employ laborers from fields suspected of heretical leanings. This has resulted in gathering together groups of workers of distinct theological affinity in certain fields who consider themselves orthodox, end quote. Here, Andreasen is referring to a term which sociologists today would call sorting. Andreasen is right that Adventists never insisted on total doctrinal unity, as I think it's George Knight who says about the Millerite movement, is uh, that, that Miller was a one, it was a one-doctrine movement. Okay, believe that Jesus is coming very, very, very soon, and, you know, whatever else you believe, you believe. All right, that might be a, a slight exaggeration, but, but yeah, it's true, okay? Since those early Millerite days, the movement was just, it was more of a coalition of diverse Christians around the central idea that Jesus was coming soon, and as Sabbatarian and then Seventh-day Adventist formed, they had more doctrines, which they considered central or essential, and there, are, there, was, there was still a ton of room to, to believe differently on the edges, where those less important beliefs are. According to Andreas, and now you have a leader in one conference saying, for example, I want more pastors who agree with me on the non-essential doctrines. So now this conference was, is full of a certain type of pastor, and that naturally leads to those pastors forming a certain type of member in those churches. And now there are conferences where, where you might be welcome to preach in, and somewhere you might not be welcome to preach in. And the result of this sorting is that churches are being planted within the church, with their own beliefs, culture, style of music, language, orthodoxy. And not only are people sorting and forming churches within the church, but they are viewing other Adventists who are somehow less than. And if this was true in 1943, okay, it's, it's, more, it's more true within Adventism today. Now, Andreasen wasn't done yet. He makes some cryptic statements. He says that the daily controversy was far from dead, and that Adventists had been far more influenced than we care to admit by false doctrines, at least when it came to the sanctuary doctrine. He doesn't elaborate on that in the letter. But he, he does circle back to his earlier topic, that seminary teachers are alone out on a limb. They don't have support from the general conference. When seeking for advice on dealing with the Trinity, which is a subject that Andreasen calls a delicate subject, he says that a teacher, quote, quickly learns through trial and error that he had better avoid certain subjects, end quote. Students arrive at the seminary aware of what I'll call the theopolitical landscape of the church, which, which doctrines are in vogue, right? Which doctrines are politically expedient to emphasize and which should be avoided, there's a politics to how one handles doctrine. You need to know which teachings are landmines for which groups of Adventists and tread carefully. 
Students, Andreasen notes, can be very perceptive about such things. And Andreasen noticed that, quote, students watch for certain expressions. And if anything approaching alleged heretical views are mentioned, he may be reported and called to account. That's the teacher. Such accounting does not include a study of the doctrine in question, but a warning that it is wise not to commit himself to on such subjects as the 144,000, this generation, the king of the north, the second beast of Revelation 13, Armageddon, Revelation 17, the new or old view of several doctrines, the scale, sliding or otherwise, the fallibility or infallibility of Uriah Smith in his writings, the shut door, the personality of God or the Holy Spirit, the question of whether Christ actually carried blood in a vessel into the sanctuary in 1844, creation, the first day of creation, the fourth day of creation, the necessity of Christ's death, the fact of whether he died as God or as man or both, divorce, non-combatancy, remarriage, marriage and children in heaven, and a hundred other questions. These questions are taboo, end quote. Whew! These are just a few of the landmines that a theology professor has to be careful with when teaching his students. Okay, I don't pretend to understand why each and every one of these items was controversial, but it's hard not to imagine why some of them would be controversial, okay? And, and he's, he's basically saying that a teacher gets to class. You know that there's all of these landmines that are divisive to different groups of Adventists, and a student will come into class and ask a seemingly innocent question about one of them. And the teacher who's informed knows where this is going, right? He says that students watch for certain expressions, and if anything approaching heresy is, is observed, then they're going to go tell somebody. Maybe they're going to go home and tell their conference president. Maybe we're going to tell their union president. The thing you got to know about Adventism, guys, is that everybody knows somebody. <laughs> Every Adventist in the church either knows somebody with some kind of power in the church, somebody who's up in administration or, or who's a teacher or something or a pastor, or they're, or they're like one step removed from knowing somebody there, okay? I mean, if I had a... Oh, to, to trot out this tired expression. If I had a dollar for every Adventist who, who I was surprised to learn, like, oh, well, I know so-and-so. I used to hang out with so-and-so. So-and-so baptized me. You know, I, I email so-and-so just to see how he's doing. Like, oh, man, the name dropping is, <laughs> is, is a real thing. All right. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise that these students have somebody that they can go report to. Who can, who can get this professor in, in some degree of trouble or put some pressure on this professor, right? Like everybody in Adventism knows somebody, or at least they know somebody who knows somebody. So the teacher has to be careful how they teach certain subjects. Maybe a hundred other subjects other than the, the big list he gave us is yeah, a little bit of an exaggeration or something, but you're getting the point here. He's like, I'm trying to teach the Bible, and it just seems like there's so many subjects. I have to be really careful about how I commit myself to, to them, how, how authoritatively I teach one view versus another. It's almost like he's teaching at like a non, non-denominational Christian school, right? <laughs> but this is within a, within a denomination. He's like, I got to be careful with, with all the different variety of, of beliefs on these things. So Andreasen is frustrated because it's almost impossible to, you know, actually teach theology in this environment. 
So you say Jesus is divine. One student runs home to his union president, declares you a heretic. If you teach Jesus isn't divine, another student runs home and does the same. Given all of these topics he mentioned, you might wonder if Andreas would ever be allowed to leave Maryland with all of the enemies he might make. And to make it worse, Andreasen says that it's not enough to avoid certain subjects because if a student asks you about your views on Armageddon and you recognize, ah, this is a trap, I'm going to be very, very diplomatic and careful here, then they just accuse you of being wishy-washy. That professor doesn't really believe anything on that subject, you know. So you're a heretic even if you don't say anything or if you're, if you're too diplomatic, too careful with your words. So teachers began putting out feelers, dipping their toe in the water to see if a subject is safe to talk about when they want to bring up something in class. Some, Andreasen writes, quote, will be inclined to laugh this whole matter off, but it is too serious for that. Some of our students are in deadly earnest about the most trivial things, and the seminary teacher must take these factors into account, end quote. Now, these matters have implications for the structure of the church as well, because some colleges don't like what is being taught at the seminary, and so they will in time, uh, from Andreasen's day, offer their own graduate theological education to rival the seminaries. And then another college will, will perhaps rival that other college's program. And so back to Andreasen, quote, such a situation will mean nothing less than that regional theology will be taught in these schools and a different emphasis given by each institution according to locality. Each school will require text suited to their need, and there are publishing houses ready to meet that demand. To me, this seems most dangerous. The present tendency is toward disunity. It will eventuate into each union or division being a law unto itself, constituting a self-sufficient and complete unit, training its own workers in its own peculiar system of theology, believing all the others wrong and itself the stronghold of orthodoxy. I see no hope in the direction we are going." End quote. Andreasen invited McElhaney to understand that, that more than the future of the seminary is at stake here. This is about the future of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and, and, and what that future is going to look like. Andreasen believed that unless the seminary could become, quote, the melting pot of all regional theologies and serve as a band to unite all in common faith, our worldwide doctrinal unity is lost End quote. He goes on, quote, let there be free discussion. The times demand this. We are headed for disunion, disorganization. It will not come in a day, but the groundwork is being laid. End quote. That's Andreasen's third letter. Prescient, insightful, prophetic. M.L. Andreasen describes a church where its leaders have lost the appetite for leadership. Or perhaps the church has simply grown too big to be led. For better or for worse, the days of George Ida Butler and Arthur Daniels and their strong hand were over. But Andreasen's letter places a lion's share of the problem at the feet of the church's members. If leaders won't or can't lead, well, you know, members certainly aren't strolling into the seminary ready to learn. They're arriving armed. They're arriving with preconceived ideas, knowing that they can safely ignore their professors if they disagree with them, providing that some pastor or president has their back back home. And there's room to discuss the extent to which Andreasen's fears have come to be realized. Okay, was it all as dire as he, as he expected? Personally, I think he believed too strongly that unity needs hierarchy. It needs a chain of command. I, I don't think he 
He fully appreciated what those regional theological differences could offer us, right? His perspective is a very modern one, and it doesn't quite translate into this postmodern world where we're 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 looking for differences as as something that can that can help make us stronger as a church, right? We want to hear what people around the world have have to bring to the theological table today. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know that he's right that funneling all graduate religion students through one institution would have stopped Adventism's theological drift or would have preserved unity. Okay, so we could we could talk about those details and his vision for the church, but but Andreasen certainly saw icebergs ahead. And even if the church didn't strike every one of them, he, he was right that these are dangerous seas. He was right about this theological drift. He was right to be concerned about how Adventists were, were talking about each other. He was right that the church wasn't holding people accountable consistently and still isn't. He was right that different regions of the church are heading in different theological and, and even practical directions. Andreasen was worried for the future unity of the Adventist church. And, and reading this letter almost 80 years later, I'm amazed at how clearly he understood and saw the trends in the church. Now, Andreasen didn't quit that summer. He would go on to teach until 1950 when the General Conference finally got involved by telling him that he's now retired. But he was a careful, conservative, logical thinker. And around the same time, a General Conference committee member gave him a sermon by HMS Richards, the famed radio broadcaster with Voice of Prophecy, gave it to Andreas and please critique Richards' sermon. How'd you like to how'd you like to have that job? He well, I'll just put it this way. You can get a sense for Andreasen's intelligence in that critique. He dissected Richards' sermon so thoroughly. I wonder how that man could ever rebuild it. But what we've seen in this letter today is that he didn't just have a scholar's mind. He had a pastor's heart, too. He was worried about the future of his church. He wanted its leaders to get their hands dirty, to be more actively involved in in shaping the spirit as well as the mind of the denomination. He wanted its members to be kinder to each other and willing to learn. He wanted the church to be whole, unified, focused, and devout. He doesn't name names in this letter. It's not this conference's fault or that college's fault. He doesn't even pick a side on the Trinity or the deity of Christ, okay? I think you can guess where he stands in those two things. His concern is for the church not to push his own beliefs on the general conference president in this letter and insist that they be enforced. There's no grandstanding here. And I cannot help but think of what the church would be like today if Adventists back then had listened to Andreasen. Wow. Never thought I'd find myself saying those words. We'll see you next time. 